0: Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves
1: meeting coffee. How cool is that? Official coffee of the
0: now Podcast. I had these feelings, I had these words floating around in me. You write a song, you have to remember how you felt. You have
2: to remember what the weather was like. You have to remember what his neck smelt like. You have to remember all of it.
1: Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast. The podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R and sincerightnow.com with your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. With our guest tonight... Sarah Heppeler, author of Blackout, remembering the things I drank to forget. Hi. Hi,
0: uh, it's Chris again, and this time I have uh, Matt uh, in the studio, so to speak, with me. Hello, Sarah. Hello. And Jeff is Skyping in from Florida, where he's on vacation with his family.
3: (laughs) Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good.
0: And can you hear us all reasonably well, or...?
3: Yeah, I okay. can.
0: We were just talking weather. You're you're in Dallas now, right? I am. Um, how's the weather?
3: Well, it was <laughs> raining. <laughs> it was raining really hard today, and there was this storm that blew through town. It's been kind of cool, nice and cool for July, but yeah, rainy.
0: Yeah. Well, the two of us in St. Louis, that's where we have two. And uh, and before we get going, I'm gonna just one up you on the the cat that may. Meow on your end. And I have a five-year-old daughter yeah. um, that may, may <laughs> walk, She just, may meow on your right, She our may end. meow on, on your end. Yeah, <laughs> and, and despite her assurances that she won't come walking in, um, she may. So, yeah, if we're ready to go, we have beverages, coffees, waters. Um, Let's roll. We can jump in. And as I told you, I'll, I'll do my best with a brief intro. And then we can go. All right. Cool. All right. Tonight on the podcast, our guest is Sarah, and forgive me if I mispronounce the last name, Hepala
2: That's perfect.
0: Excellent. All right. Um, she, among other things, is the personal essays editor at Salon.com. She's written essays on culture for the New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, Glamour, The Guardian, Nerve, Slate, and The Morning News. Ooh. And unless you've been drinking under a rock for the past <laughs> month, um, she's the author of Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drink to Forget. Welcome, Sarah.
3: Thank you.
1: Welcome, Sarah.
4: Yes, indeed. Welcome. Yeah.
3: And I should say that if you've been drinking under a rock for the past month, you're the perfect demographic for right. this book. Exactly. Right. So I'm so glad you found us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I, I, I was talking to you in the pre-call that you're the second guest of our second year. And uh, we appreciate, uh, you know, you uh, getting us off to a, a big start here.
3: I'm honored. Two and two.
0: Two and two. Exactly. Um, hmm. So if, what we normally do is, you know, we typically get the guests to, to take us through a bit of how they came to be where they are and I you're you're probably the first guess where it's all laid out. We just yeah, all right? read it. <laughs> yeah
4: we just um, all exactly. read it. If you want right. to know the story, <laughs>
3: your newest I book always seller. like I joked that like like it was so silly to have an about the author page at the end of the book
2: yeah, and I wanted it to be
3: like see pages one through two hundred and thirteen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like if you don't know anything about the author at this point, like yeah. I can't help you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome. It, that's so funny.
0: And I mean, as a writer, that's that's what you've been doing. That was your career prior to the book. Um, yeah. So, so getting into the book. Yeah. Where, where you're going to let everyone know everything. Yeah. Um,
1: it was, yeah. It was like this giant fifth, uh, fourth and fifth step or this huge cathartic thing. Is that how it came about?
3: You know, it's interesting. I just recently heard in a meeting that uh, the year of sobriety that you're on, that's the step that you're on. You ever heard this? Wow, I have
1: not. No.
3: So I've just turned, I just have five years of sobriety, which means that last year was my fourth step and this year is my fifth step. There you you go. For people that don't know, it is this rigorous inventory, right? And that fifth step is sharing it with somebody. And I was like, on the money. Interesting. (laughs) That is perfect. That's great. Um, yeah, but so, you know, did I'm sorry, I sort of, I, I cut you off at some point, but it's like, did you want me to talk about like, my career or how I like, oh. I how I came to write this book. Oh, Is yeah, no, I, I don't think
0: you cut me off. We're, I was, um, I think Jeff had a question.
1: Well, I just thought it feels like this this experience. I don't know if you're going after this feeling of getting it all out. Obviously, you do, do that in the fifth step. But did, I mean, it's been a month now that this is out. Has, has it felt like that? Do you feel like, oh, my God, I got this whole thing out there and everyone, it's a different you now that this this is published?
3: Well, so I've been writing about my life for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I wrote about my life was probably out of a feeling of inadequacy, Mm -hmm. that I did not know as much about pop culture or politics as my peers did. Mm -hmm. And so I looked for things that I had authority in. And so, and also because I'm not embarrassed, I don't know what this is. You know when Lena Dunham is interviewed and they're like, why are you naked all the time? And she's like, (laughs) I don't know. I just don't feel embarrassed about being naked. (laughs) Well, I feel completely embarrassed about being naked and would never ever in a million years do that. But for whatever strange reason, I don't feel that uncomfortable telling people things about myself. And I've always been like this. I was like this when I was drinking to the like I was your friend that was like, let's play truth or dare, but only say truth questions.
2: (laughs) And, um,
3: and also like, let's tell each other all our secrets right now before last call. And, um, so I was always that person. I was always drinking to this place of confession and communion and that place where I tell you my secret burden and you say, Oh, me too. Yeah. Me too. That's me. That's me. And you know, I found that in the drinking world, and when I got sober, I thought it was gone, and then I found it in the rooms of AA. The rooms of AA are completely and 100% me too. (laughs) It's just a bunch of people sitting around being like, oh, "Oh my God, that's my story. Yeah, me too. Oh, me too. And you find that you get so relieved of the burden of being human, Mm. part of which is just this feeling of secret shame that you're different Mm and 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 corrupt or you know whatever it is that you're not as good as everyone else but the extent to which I was doing this on purpose like I didn't know the reason I wrote this book was like because I needed to do something in sobriety that I hadn't accomplished in my drinking life because I was desperate to stay sober I had been in relapse land Mm -hmm. for so long Uh I mean Years. You know, and this part gets condensed in the book because I didn't want to keep readers in that relapse lane. Right. But right. I've wondered since then, because sometimes people will say to me, and then you just quit. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I did not just quit. I mean, I quit a thousand times. Yeah. I quit so many times that the words I'm going to quit meant yeah. nothing to me. They were a lie that I said in the morning. I don't I mean it was just nothing. So when I did actually quit five years ago and I was desperate to plant some flag in the world of sobriety that could, I could point to and say, this is why it's better, Mm -hmm. you know, because it wasn't better. It sucked. It sucked for so long. And if it sucks, what will keep you from going back? So I was really desperate to, you know, the book was like my, you know, white whale, you know, it's like the thing I had never done in all these years of like those titles that you listed off, like like a lot of that stuff I did in my drinking years, I right. had a pretty successful writing career and I was writing about my life and I was telling people intimacies about my heartbreak. Mm-hmm. I was telling them I drank too much.
2: Mm-hmm. Like,
3: I mean, that was not, that was not necessarily something I was hiding, right. but what I was hiding was the cost to my soul,
2: mm-hmm.
3: the secret shame of it. Um, and so, you know, so that's why I started writing the book. You know, there's also like like, frankly, like I I needed, I was going to leave New York. I didn't know what I was going to do next. Oh, okay. I'll, like in my head, I'm like, Oh, I'll write a book. I'll s- sell it really fast. And mm-hmm. then it'll be awesome. And mm-hmm. I'll be, you know, I'll have a book deal in four months. And then it took four years and everything was slow. <laughs> but, um, you know, like it, it, it ended up being this incredibly rigorous, amazing fourth step. And that putting it out in the world was this big reveal, but I have to say it was a slow reveal because see along the way, even though it came out two weeks ago and it feels like a month, mm. but it's just two it weeks ago. It feel like a month. Yeah. Because the publicity on it's been like, right. it's right. been big, you know, I've been really lucky in that, but, uh, it's been this big reveal to people in my life. But along the way I've been showing pages to people. I've been showing to people in my life. I've been, you know, other people have been reading it. So it has been a slow unveiling
2: mm-hmm. and
3: it, it has been this like massive, Fifth step though, which yeah. is just like, All right, everybody, here you go. Yeah. Here it is.
1: Well, it's yeah, it's the template for everyone to follow if they need to do a fifth step. There you go.
0: And That's you know, awesome. What's interesting about that, you you know it has a, a, a specific value to you in, in, in putting this all out there and sort of you know, purging and cleansing yourself. I, I, I don't have the language of fourth of the steps really. So yeah. Forgive me. But no. um, We forgive you, know, you Chris. <laughs> Thank you. As I read it, I was thinking, you know, for me, um, all those years ago, Carolyn Knapp's book, drinking love story, which I'm sure it was for many, many people, Um, you know, in my isolate, my recovery isolation, I thought it was just for me, just like, and, um, you know, I credit it with saving my life. Yeah. And, you know, have you considered that, I mean, you're going to save at least one life and very likely many more. Oh, that's
3: sweet of you to say. Well, I
0: mean, I I can't imagine it won't. And that's, uh, how does that feel? Have you thought about that?
3: Well, I'll tell you what. I wanted to save a life with this book. I wanted to save my life.
2: Sure, of course. Mm -hmm. And
3: that was what I was doing. And it's like, I, you know, I... I have a separation from what I was doing from what other books meant to me. Mm-hmm. You know the part of your question that I relate to so intensely is, "Oh my god, that book, Caroline Knapp's book Drinking a Love Story. Oh my god, I read it 3 times at yep. least." Mm-hmm. And that's a lot for me because like you, I'm a really slow reader. <laughs> And uh, you've been talking about that on Twitter. I right. totally relate. Like I'm the slowest reader ever. Yeah. And uh, people keep telling me, I read your book in a day. And I'm like, stop bragging. Like I'm so <laughs> I'm such a slow reader. Pull I can't like, that. ah okay, but um, but that book, that book was a message in a bottle, right? And right. that's what it is that we're looking for. You hit on something important, which is the isolation we get, right. not just as drinkers, as human beings,
2: yeah.
3: you know. Uh, we get in this isolated place in our own home, in our own head and we believe that we're the only people that have these things and that is what literature does. The -hmm. shock of recognition, right? right? Somebody says something that you thought was completely and uniquely your own and someone just like put it in a book and you're like, Oh my God, like that's the zap. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's that mean, that's everything to me. That's what keeps me afloat. And, you know, in recovery memoirs in David Foster Wallace books in Cheryl Strayed books, like I'm looking for that part of, you know, that, that writer that can say something that I felt, but hadn't articulated to myself or that I had experienced, but thought I had only experienced alone. And so I hoped that I would do something like what those books had done to me. And so when I hear from other people that it did mean something to them, Mm -hmm. like that just makes me, it makes me feel, um, I, I don't have really good words for it because I feel really humbled by sure, it. Well. But I feel like, like a lot of times I'll write those people back and I'm like, we're saving each other. Like you're saving me too. Like we're in this, True. like, this is not just a one way thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, uh, uh, you know, the fourth step, you said you didn't have the vocabulary for the fourth step, but it's like, it's just, it also has a something to do with confession as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why confession shows up. I think in a lot of different organized religions, yeah. as ways of purging what is painful inside of you and being able to reckon with the, the difficult failures in yourself, the pain of real life, and there is just something that uh, sustaining about it, you know. And that the fourth step is the confession step. Confession gets such a bad rap
2: mm-hmm. in
3: in writing and memoir and stuff, and I kind of get it. But because it gets cheap, you know, it's a kind of cheap currency. Sure. But uh, but man, there's something really powerful about it. Mm-hmm. Telling telling your insides, you know, because we all present our outsides to each other, right? And mm-hmm. so we're always comparing against the outsides. And then when somebody gives you the insides and you're like, oh man, like you've suffered too. <laughs> so. right.
1: I, I once heard that uh, your four step, it, it's you have to get out all the things you were going to take to the grave. Like whatever those secrets were. I wonder, did you get all that out in this book?
3: No, I probably got some more books in there. <laughs> That's what I
1: figure. Well, it's funny. Have, have People like since they've read it, have, have you gotten a lot of notes like people reminding you of other incidences that you've forgotten for <laughs> book two?
3: Well, you know, this was a uh, yeah. First of all, yes, I've had all these conversations with people that knew me in those years. It's not yeah. like uh, it's not like oh hey, why didn't you talk about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's often more. Uh, it's very moving, but also it, I find it painful Where <laughs> a few friends of mine have written me and said, you know, I was just so scared this one night. And, uh, you know, I write mm-hmm. a couple, like about how I used to fall downstairs. stairs yeah. mm-hmm. and, um, I that's not a, that's not, that's a real deal. Oh, that's one of my, one of my
4: favorite tricks personally. So I'm right uh, with you. Yeah.
3: I used <laughs> to fall down the stairs and I didn't remember it. And if you don't remember it, you have total disconnect from the danger that you were in. Right. And so, like, yeah. friends would tell me, like, I fell down these stairs in uh, Manhattan when I was viz- visiting some friends. I do mention this glancingly in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. But my friend, she wanted to take me to the emergency room. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I'm fine. You know, you know that drunken thing where you're like, I'm fine, y'all. Yeah. Like, leave me alone. I've got this. I'm totally cool. I'm not even drunk right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I can drive. Give me the keys. I can drive. I can drive. I'm fine. You know, because you what happens is you drink yourself to being a baby, and then people baby you and you get so mad at them right. because you don't want to be a baby because you want to be a, a, a big shot, but you're a drunk. And so I would get really angry. She wanted to take me to the emergency room. I fought with her. I ended up kind of projectile vomiting in her bathroom Mm -hmm. and so she was like we're going like because it was a concussion vomit you know yeah and she was like i thought you were gonna die that night because if you sleep with a concussion you can die i'm like she's writing this back to this is like 10 years later or something and i'm like i can't believe i put this woman through that And and then, of course, I came back and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she's like, don't worry about it. Like she didn't want it to be all (laughs) we're good. We're good. We're good. It was a long time ago. It's fine. (laughs) Don't cry. You know, Um, (laughs) it's a lot of heavy stuff. What I have heard a lot of as well is people from my years in the industry who knew me at different publications saying, I never knew this stuff. You were cool and you seemed really confident and. Like I had no idea that you were struggling with these things, and you know to me, that's a reminder that people present to the world a different face than what they feel inside, that their struggles can be very subterranean, and that I, as a person, was acting as if a lot you know mm-hmm. i was i was- I wanted you to see me as competent and assertive and 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 I could play that role um it's just that I never believed myself in that part, Mm -hmm. uh, until now, now I am that person. I'm not pretending that anymore. Um, but back then I was just kind of, it was a little bit of a charade.
0: Right. You feel like a a fraud propped up by the alcohol.
3: I was complete. I felt like a complete fraud and I was always living in fear that people would, um, would find me out. Did you guys have that too? Did you have feelings of fraud, like being a oh, fraud? My. Oh
4: God, yeah, oh, yes. imposter syndrome.
3: Yeah, gotta, yeah, yeah. I, imposter know, syndrome. That's got to be like a, a. That's a thing, right? Yes. Everyone feels that way when they're when they're drunks because you don't actually think you've earned it. Right. And I was obsessed with this idea that people were going to find me out.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I can and- completely relate to that. Just the, that gnawing, deep seated. Fear that you don't deserve any of the good things that are happening to yeah. you, and that you're you're absolutely play acting your way through mm-hmm. every scenario. And then you get sober, and you're like, "Holy shit! I really am the person I was pretending to be." Yes. Under the guise of, right. uh, you know, what right. a great present <laughs> right. that is. You're like, Both. "Wait a second!
3: I am that I'm person." Right. It, was, it was It was in me all along. Exactly. I mean, that's the really weird thing. And I was, uh, you know. When I was in that fraudulent place, it was so confusing for me because I kept getting rewarded, right? Mm -hmm. Like I kept getting things. Mm -hmm. I would be like, I'm going to be fired. And then everyone else got fired and I kept my job.
2: (laughs) And I was like,
3: what (laughs) just happened? Um, But you're, that is so right. You know, you get sober and you realize that the person you were pretending to be, you actually are. (laughs) It's really weird.
0: It is. I mean, it, you are that person. It might take a little bit more work to... to well, it, right? it, t-
3: it totally took um, years for me to, right. to kind of build my way back up to that stable exactly. confidence.
0: Right. But it, it is amazing that, that the rewards of sobriety are legit, right? It's like you, you can't fathom that in the, the throes of you know your active... I never addiction. believed it. Right. I just, I never believed
4: it. I always I thought the rewards of sobriety it. were a compromise.
3: Oh, completely. And they were just a downshifting of the joy of life. Like all those people have just, it's like when people get married and they're like, no, it's awesome. And you're like, no, you guys are sad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, and, and that's not (laughs) true by the way. I don't, I don't think married (laughs) people are sad, but, um, but you know, like it, to me, I thought people were kind of selling, trying to sell themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they were like, no, really it's better. It's really better. Yeah. And, um, you know, the other funny thing is all those years that I really and truly thought to you that drinking made me funnier
2: mm, yeah. and
3: it made me smarter and like faster. And I hear this again and again from people and it's just – you the person thinking that is not hanging out with drunk people.
2: Yeah, right.
3: Because if you hang out with drunk people, they are not funny. And they're so annoying. Like they repeat themselves and they're like, they think stuff's funny when it's not. They're infantilized, you yeah, know?
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: My, yeah, my rule at a party is after the third story of the same story, like that's yeah. time to leave. You could, yeah, it's just funny. You're totally right.
4: I w- I've been in that scenario recently. It's like okay, just hang in there. Just hang in there. Let them talk it. T- let them exhaust themselves, and then you yeah. can go home. Um,
3: and you know what's so uncomfortable too is that drunk people um, they lose their social constraints, so they do things like talking in your face. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Touching you and stuff, but you're still stuck in the social constraints of sobriety. So mm-hmm. I could never be like, get off me, get away. Like you're being, you know. But then I was talking to this person and she was so wasted and I eventually just turned around and left. And exactly. She didn't notice. Yeah.
0: That's what I was going to say. The, the bonus is that it's pretty easy to sneak away from drunk people. Yeah, <laughs> they, just,
3: <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> they just don't even care. They're just so, it's so crazy. It's really funny to me. And some, somebody said, uh, after the third time, the story is repeated, but I've actually found um, I have a much lower tolerance. I pretty much have to leave after the third drink is what mm-hmm. I've found. Yeah. Um, three drinks is about where I can get because after the third drink is when they start taking a rocket ride yeah. and I'm just not gonna, I'm not there.
4: Yeah. Did, did you find yourself, uh, upon first getting sober? I, I felt this compulsion to prove to people around me that I could still hang completely. And, and, and I'd find myself staying out way later than I wanted to. And with drunker people than I wanted to be around. And it was just, it was an exercise. It was an endurance test. And completely. I'm over just it now. If you were still cool. Just to show you could still, yeah, just to show, hey, I'm still yeah. fun. And I one right. of the you mentioned it right. in the book about lunching oh, yeah. with somebody and saying, sorry, I'm not that interesting. You know, I found myself so really apologetic about the mm-hmm. fact that I wasn't as fun as I used to be. And it was all seen through this distorted lens of my own self
1: worth, yeah, you know, that it, I'm not but fun. It's,
3: <laughs> but it's also because you, you know, frankly, There is a dip in your social value if you don't drink amongst certain crowds. Oh, yeah. Like, I know that there was in mine. You know, it's just kind of like she doesn't drink anymore. Like, it depends. See, now, I have two sets of friends. I have my true, deep, meaningful friendships that that I carried with me in a sobriety. And then I have my drinking buddies. Mm -hmm. And for my drinking buddies, like, we didn't have much in common after I quit drinking. Exactly but I wanted to hang. I completely wanted to be the cool person that could go to the bar and drink my Diet Coke or my seltzer and be like, I'm cool y'all. It's no different. See, it's not, it's not, I didn't change. And the sad thing, I don't, it's not even sad, but the truth of it was I did change. Yeah. You know, I did change and I didn't want that anymore. And when I went to that bar, first of all, the first few times I tried to do that, I went into a relapse because I if you sit in a bar, you will eventually drink a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Long, you know, if you're in that vulnerable place. And I would get so activated by people's disappointment by for, of me. Like this is such a messed up. I think of it as a female thing, so I'm curious if you guys feel it too. But I felt like I was letting people down when I and drink, and so if they look disappointed, I would be like, "Okay, I'm just gonna get a drink."
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you get you get so locked into that pleasing others mode. I don't know. I don't know. I I so completely related. There's so so many points throughout the book where you articulated the empathy, just huge feels. I could absolutely it's like, yeah, that was it. She just said it. That's it. That's why. <laughs> whether it be the motives for drinking, the way. But yeah, drinking for drinking for others in large part, you know. I felt kinda like I fell into that. Yeah, just, yeah
3: and, and I don't know if that was just my alcoholic brain kind of trying to come up with any excuse it could to, you know, that's like you need to drink for your friends. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I know that it was really powerful in me that I needed to drink to make other people happy. And and that is uh, an extension of the idea that I need to be a certain way to make other people happy, which is the real toxic problem in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And sobriety called bullshit on a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that I was that was an unwinnable war and I was gonna have to do that thing that the therapists and Oprah and all of them <laughs> had been telling me to do all along which was I was gonna have to start living for myself you know and mm-hmm. be more comfortable with myself and let the rest of it follow but that was really hard because I was also like I did not know how to be close to people in sobriety mm-hmm. did you guys have a problem with that too like where you just craved closeness but you were scared of intimacy
4: any kind of intimacy. Absolutely. I mean, uh, even, yeah, yeah. I, and you know, I don't know. I don't want to speak for these guys, but I, I could I absolutely relate to that. I didn't know how to function in so many capacities, but in particularly closeness with people. I mean, and, and you talked about that is, you know, alcohol was your bridge to yeah. try. It was that craving for some sort of contact, some, something real, you know, and, uh, Got it. It's completely elusive to me. Completely elusive. And
0: Jeff got to watch me trying to learn how to how to have a relationship again. It's like I, I was I had no idea how to have a um a sober relationship because I'd never had one. And uh it, it was a really um yeah. daunting prospect.
3: You know, and Chris, this is something that uh, you know, you do this podcast and it's like, you know, when I was in this my early stages, like I listened to podcasts, right. you know, that they were, to me, they were almost like training wheels for like how people talk to each other
2: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and they weren't, they weren't drunk. You know, those people weren't drunk, but they were still having honest, deep conversations. And, you know, I was listening to Mark Marin and I oh, was yeah. listening to, uh, Jesse, Jesse Thorne, who does a Jordan, Jesse go show. And I was listening to Terry Gross. Um, you know, Marin is just like a masterclass in oh, how yeah. to have deep conversations uh-huh. with people. And he talks openly about his sobriety and he is, you know, he was, he was such a freeing figure mm-hmm. for me. Um, maybe it's because he was male, maybe it's cause he's cranky or right. in his fifties now or whatever, but he was so free to just say. Uh, I'm angry about this. I know it's irrational. <laughs> this is it makes no sense. I know that I'm being difficult. And I, as somebody who felt like I had crammed all my feelings into this five foot two body, trying to be pleasing to everybody all my life, there was this freedom in hearing this guy just kind of unloose all his crankiness. Yeah. And he, and 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 the people responded to it, and and they were like, "Oh yeah, you know, like we get it. You're just you're just you." And and then they would end up having these incredible conversations that, uh, were the things that I wanted. Like, um, yeah, like uh, I had thought that alcohol was, was the only way to access those conversations. And I wanted to find a new way.
4: It's funny that you, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Marin because that, that was so huge for me too. Just initially, I mean, just the freedom with which not only the crankiness, but you know, he, frankly, he talks about AA. And people on his program talk about AA. And I, you know, I, they always say when you go to meetings, find somebody you want, you want something what they have, follow them around, ask them to be your sponsor. And I just wasn't, I wasn't in a place when I was first getting sober to even identify the positivity in anybody. I'd walk into meetings, be like, I don't want any of the shit these people have, I'm out. You know, but I'd listen to Marin and be like, okay. (laughs)
3: I want everything
4: so this guy has just I
3: know I, I said the same thing in an interview <laughs> recently because they were talking about my you know you know basically revealing my anonymity which I which I went back and forth on mm-hmm. but you know there were two people that had opened the door to AA for me in a big way. you know Caroline Knapp and her book is open about mm-hmm. her participation in AA and then um, Marin and and those were the two wim- people, not women those are two people that I wanted what they had mm-hmm. more than anything. That's cool. You know? And uh, it, so, yeah, that's completely – I mean I, I agree with everything you said.
1: But it's funny. Uh, even today, and I don't, I don't know if meetings – like I don't know if going to meetings is ever cooler. Like, oh, man, I can't wait to go. But now I think I'm just at the point where you just go because it's a different kind of something. I don't know. There's just something about an authenticity or something there. But I, don't, I wouldn't say like, God, oh, I really look forward to going to a meeting. But you just go. Like you just end up going and you always hear something great there.
3: To me, I like it. You know, I never thought I was going to like it, um, but because in the beginning it was yeah. seriously, I hated it. I can't even tell you how much I yeah. hated it. Yeah. And uh, now, to me, I go at noon. And so it's always this really great buffer between my morning and my afternoon. And if the morning sucked, then I can kind of start over and just gets me out of my own headspace for a little bit, whether the day is going great. and I'm like, I'm a genius or whether it's going (laughs) badly. And I'm like, I'm the worst person ever. Like it just gets me out of me. And I don't think I realized how much of my pain was caused by just you know my own headspace like it's just yeah. it's me versus me yeah. <laughs> like that is my primary battle <laughs> yeah. man versus her, himself or woman yeah, versus exactly.
1: herself well it's that David Foster Wallace we're all addicted to thinking and you mentioned him a lot and we, yeah. we've all we're all big fans of his as Definitely. well but and it's that's exactly it it's it's this addiction to thinking and a lot of it is projections of shit that's not going to go well for you you know, or it's just it's strange.
3: It's catastrophizing mm-hmm. and it's trying yeah. to control the universe in a way that is completely pointless. And, you know, it's it's actually kind of shadow boxing. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just all sorts of nonsense. Yeah. David Foster Wallace was a huge, important figure for me, many other sober people. You know, he never spoke openly about his participation in AA, but he spoke eloquently about the program. Yeah. And Infinite Just is a gorgeous oh. book oh, yeah. about the recovery process Mm -hmm. and um you know it's it's a just it's a masterpiece and his interviews his the way that he uh tried to tap into a softer kinder more humane Mm -hmm. like just more evolved better person Mm -hmm. you know instead of being devoured by his own brilliance ego uh, Mm -hmm. uh all that other stuff yeah, he was a really important figure for me, too. And yes, I am addicted to thinking. And one of the things that the program teaches you, you know, is that, like, you can't think your way out of your problems. And that's kind yeah. of hard, I think, for people like me to hear.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I would hear that in meetings. And, you know, I was a chronic relapser for years and years and years. And I'd hear that in meetings. You can't think your way out of your problems. And I'd think privately to myself, yeah, but I'll be the first.
3: Like, that's <laughs> yeah, great yeah. for
4: you guys, but I got I this. You know? I know. Like... Works for because it's that chronic uniqueness, you know. You were talking about it earlier totally. that that just deep-seated individuality where we're we are different. We're on an island. We've got this worse than anybody's ever had it, and we're going to deal with it in a way that nobody's ever dealt with it before. And it just doesn't work like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: And what's interesting about that to me is that it, in the act of addiction, we're not that unique. The stories may be different, and yep. you know, read, reading reading the book, you know, the the first. Um, the, the active part the active uh, alcoholism part um, you know I'm, I'm reading it and and i'm saying sure the, the story is different is harrowing and it's heartbreaking and it's powerful and it, it's moving and um, i realized i get to the part where you start um, the process of of recovery and finding sobriety and that's when i started highlighting like crazy because what's unique <laughs> is how we how we get better you know yeah. i think that's really the uniqueness um, in the stories, because, you know, we all have very different stories. You're not supposed to compare stories, uh, I understand, in the rooms. <laughs> so I've heard. Um, <laughs> great. But, uh, but, yeah, it actually surprised me. I look back and I'm like, why didn't I highlight anything of the, you know, harrowing, heartbreaking, active stuff? And it's because the fascination is, for me, um, yeah. is uh, what you did to to solve it. You know, right. to, to work...
3: I'm glad that you, uh, sparked to the second half of the book, you know, um, to me, it's always interesting to me who likes the second half Mm -hmm. of the book and who prefers the first, you know, Mm -hmm. and usually it's people that have been through something really traumatic, not necessarily, uh, people in recovery, but maybe a divorce or the loss Mm -hmm. of a parent or some sort of quit, like they've gone through a lonely Valley of some Mm -hmm. sort. And they really connect to that second half of the book Mm -hmm. where I'm trying so hard to be a better person. Um, I also and I and I really agree with what you said about drunk stories are kind of all the same. And I think one of the things I wanted to challenge with this book was a very conventional idea in memoir writing that the the drama happens in the addiction. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And I really feel like the drama happens after you quit. Absolutely. And that is when the shit hits the fan and you have to reckon with yourself, your own fraudulence, the bullshit that you have taken with yourself through your world. And you have to get really real
2: Mm -hmm.
3: about who you are and what you want to do, because otherwise you're going to slink back. And by the way, there's a tremendous amount of drama for the person in relapse because that is, holy cow, that's a, that's just a pain, such a painful, painful place, you know? Um, but when you are in recovery and it's like, it's true. Everybody's little story is different. I love hearing stories about things that people find, you know, for me, it was like learning to play guitar, um, you know, uh, doing other things that just took me out of my head. But I've heard people talk about running. They talk about, um, You know, playing cards with their kid. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody mother telling a story about playing old maid with her kids. You know, just like the little simple joys of being present for your life when you were drinking away your life and you were not, you know, sobriety is be here now, right?
1: No question about
2: it.
3: Drinking is like be anywhere but here. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, it's like the biggest and you hear this a lot in meetings, you you all of a sudden become the People that your whole family depends on. I mean, when there's a funeral, they start calling you. I mean, it's amazing wh- how far we come in sobriety from a person they don't want around, won't yeah. call, to this person that just becomes mm-hmm. the glue in some ways of a family.
3: Yeah, I've been very. I, you know, that's been something that's really nice to me is to become a reliable person. Yeah, that feels good. Right. right. You, yeah, you do it, what it you does. say you're going to do. It does. Yeah. And and I'm not making all these emergency calls to all my, you know, rotary of 12 people that I have to keep lined up because I have to spread around my confession. So nobody, no one person thinks I have too much of a drinking problem, you know, <laughs> like so I have to keep this whole like roster of people on the list and, <laughs> and shake it up. And, uh, it feels good to be somebody that people reach out to and they know that they can trust me. They know that. Also, this is like, mm, I don't even know why I'm talking about this. But when I was a drunk, I don't think I was very trustworthy. And what I mean is that I just would get drunk and tell everyone shit to everyone
2: else. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I didn't
3: mean to. I really, like, I would, I mean, in my heart, I was like, somebody would tell me a secret. And I'd be like, no, I am not going to tell anybody that. And then I would go to the bar and be like, dude, I can't believe this thing I just heard. I just, (laughs) I would always do that. And I... You know, I hesitate to say it because I don't want all my friends who trusted me in those years to just be like, what did I do? Because it's like I was a good person, but I just couldn't keep a secret. I just couldn't keep I couldn't keep things to myself. Hmm. Um, I was a gossip. Hmm. um, And uh, I am very proud to be the dead end for people's confessions now. You know, like if you need to tell me something and you need to know that it's not going anywhere else, I got you.
0: Exactly. And, and yeah, we can uh, we can add a big long beep over that if you want. Um, but uh, right. no, it's interesting, though. But I mean, those stories, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, our self value when we're when we're active alcoholics and addicts, it's like those those somebody else's stories become our currency because ours totally. are kind of ours are sad. Right. Yeah. And
3: also, like, aren't you just always trying to build the case that you're the most important person to be around? Cause right. You have these connecting, you have these stories that exactly. you can tell about other people. And you're you're right. They hadn't even thought about that, that your own stories are kind of sad. You're stuck in reruns. Right. So it's like, what are what's the you know, what's the the conversational currency that you can bring? Mm-hmm. And it's other people's lives. And there's always this. I think there is this thing about like, I don't think i did this consciously but let me talk shit about other people to make myself feel better oh, yeah.
4: oh no question about,
3: about the crap that i'm not doing
4: <laughs> and then and then you know in sobriety facing the truth and really having to write your story to make your story yep. non-fiction from the ground up you know i mean i, yeah. I, I that process of getting to know yourself and to it was a, it's a Dave Foster Wallace quote, and one of my favorites is, "The truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you." Mm-hmm. You know, and um, my God, what what a harrowing process it was to really look at the fundamental realities of my life and and kind of have to find out what makes me interesting, yeah. what makes me interesting, because yeah. I, I could talk shit about you all <laughs> day, you know. But
2: yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: it, it, it took me the longest to learn how to be honest. I had no. Grasp of honesty for the longest time, and years and years in sobriety, I was still telling white lies to people. Just uh, reflexively telling lies for no reason, no (laughs) idea. It's bizarre. When the truth would have been better, even yeah, Yeah. the truth, the truth would have been fine or better. And you're still
2: bizarre.
3: That's been really hard for me because I still uh, do white lies to save people's feelings. Sure, and so I don't. I'm still in my head a lot with that, where it's like. I mean, even something simple as "Do I look fat in this?" will just throw me into a into a <laughs> spin.
1: No, no, the answer is no.
0: I think nobody I answers that honestly, though, right? <laughs> I
3: know you that's know, that's like a the, tough one. That's the yeah. one line item veto you get uh, in like, right. <laughs> yeah. all That's right.
1: white lie, that one. No.
3: but 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 uh, the the what you talked about the reflexive ways that you were dishonest. I mean, yeah. to me, that that's completely it. I didn't even know when I was lying yeah. because I was so used to just saying whatever you wanted to hear or whatever was going to get me through that this level, you know, like I, I was a manipulator too. And the other word for that is charming. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I, I, I do these things where, I mean, and I still, I, I like being someone that people like, I like other people and I want to be liked, but I have to always be careful about when am I, manipulating? And when am I like, how can I be honest? What does honesty mean? Peeling away all those layers. And, um, you know, those of us, you know, you guys have all gotten sober. So you know that, you know, that path in sobriety is a lot like the path of writing a memoir about your own life. Hmm. I mean, the story, the question I ask in the the beginning of the book is how did I get here? Hmm. You know, and I think that is the essential you know, question of storytelling. It's also the question that any drunk in a you know recovery room chair or wherever they're sitting has got to answer for themselves. Okay. How did I get here? You what know? Was
0: interesting about that is my brief story that's that's on the site. I tell it uh, "How did it come to this?" Yeah, sure. And sure. Uh, it's it's exactly that. It's like you know what 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 are all the the steps or I, or I stumbled mm-hmm. through to get yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah, staircase what are, did I like, fall down?
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and, and what were the things that, that like, what are the parts of my story that, that made me drink the way I did? Like what part mm-hmm. is my responsibility and what part was never my responsibility? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I was born with a genetic, you know, sure. I got some genetic cards
2: right. dealt to me. Yeah.
3: Um, and, and then on top of that though, I made decisions Uh, then things happened to me. Those weren't necessarily my fault, but then my, you know, so there's all this sorting out of like, Mm -hmm. what's my responsibility? Um, what is isn't my responsibility? What do I need to feel guilty about? What do I need to stop feeling guilty about? Because I carried a lot of guilt with me into Mm -hmm. sobriety. And I think that can be just as troubling to your relationships. Absolutely, because if you are the person that is just constantly taking the lash to their back, mm-hmm. like that's not right-sized either. That's mm-hmm. not the way to be. That's not. That's not uh, an equal partnership with other people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you, the way that this person that, uh, for kind of said, oh, it was no big deal after ten years. Have most people all your eighth and ninth step? Everyone is just kind of when you've gone back. Have you? apologize and everyone's like, no, don't even worry about it. It's been such a long time or there's still things out there.
3: Most people, my experiences with all of those were that, you know, and and the ninth step is when you make amends. Um, and so when you do that process of going back to people and locking eyes with them and, and saying, you know, I did this thing I'd like to apologize for, whatever you say, I don't know, there's Mm -hmm. different ways. Um, almost all of them were like, oh, it's totally fine. Like, you're, yeah. it's, yeah, it's okay. I <laughs> can't even you know? remember. Oh my gosh. Oh, and like, and be- and I did a lot of this stuff because of the book. I was trying to find out about my blackouts mm-hmm. and I would go back to people. It wasn't necessarily an amends, but it was like, kind of like that where I would go back to them and be like, can you tell me what happened that yeah. night? You know, did I embarrass you? Did I do mm-hmm. something to harm you? I had to do detective work to find out if I needed to make a yeah, break, yeah. you Yeah,
2: know?
3: mm-hmm. yeah. And, they, almost invariably those people were like oh I don't even remember like and a lot of people would say well no you were really fun drunk like you were always fun to be around yeah. or some people would be like no I mean it's, you know it's it's cool don't worry about it uh, there are like two people in my past that uh, both of them had kind of friendship breakups with me and both of them I've tried to mend bridges and both of them have just been like, Nah, not interesting <laughs> that's
1: funny, but it's funny. we carry a lot of guilt and shame in and a lot of it isn't that big a deal and you yeah. know to other people, but we bring this in in these moments and like oh i still I still cringe at some of the things I did. And I'm sure no one can remember them you know it's purely my my thing it's funny
3: it's it's weird though, because we make you know it's. Sh- we carry that stuff so deep. Yeah. And for me, it it moved me around the world yeah. in so many different ways. It was like this rudder that I didn't even know was there that was pushing me away from people. It was pushing me towards social situations, social interactions. I don't want to see that person. I don't want to run into that person. Mm-hmm. What if that person you know, is upset? I didn't even know what I'd done. Right. Um And so blackouts are kind of like the extreme version of the drinkers disconnect because really all drinkers have, or drug users or whatever addicts, you know, you don't really have an idea of what you've done or what, what effects you've had on other people. So, and it's been moving, I guess that, uh, as many people as have said, Oh, I was worried about you this night. Oh, you fell down in this bar. I remember that there have been other people that said, you really you were loving to me. You 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 always made me uh, feel comfortable mm-hmm. to be around you. I always liked your presence. I'm sorry that you didn't have that for yourself.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. that is moving.
1: You you were the I never knew what a blackout was. You broke it down. What happens in the mm-hmm. brain? That's crazy. Yeah. Did you? How how'd you?
3: Yeah, and can I just way? explain that too? Because I yeah. think sure. it's really important, and yes. I think yeah,
2: it's that, fascinating. Um,
3: Uh, One of the things I didn't realize, because I had struggled with blackouts for so many years, was how many people didn't know what they were, and that when they were saying blackout, they meant passing out. Right. Um, (laughs) And so there is a big conflation between the two, Mm -hmm. and and so just
1: like the brownout bit,
3: right? Yeah. So. So what a blackout is, is it's when you drink so much that you shut down your long-term memory and you can still walk and talk and interact with people, but later you won't have any memory of it. The recorder in your brain is just not going. So it's a kind of walking amnesia. Oh. And it's one of these fascinating things. Not everybody has them. About 50% of drinkers can have them. They don't, haven't really identified um, why some and not others. Um, They know that there are specific risk factors for blackout. The risk factors are that you hold your liquor, that you drink fast, that you drink on an empty stomach and that you are female. And so I was essentially the poster child for blackout (laughs) because I hit every single one of those categories and I had, no idea and the thing about women i just want to explain real quickly because it's not that men don't have blackout they have them at about the same rate although you know men drink more so the reason it's it's about equal is because women are more prone to it and the reason is because women can't metabolize alcohol the same way that men can um this a woman the same size as a guy uh and drinking the same amount will get drunker faster Uh, I have that line in the book that, you know, nature insists on some double standards (laughs) and that's where you see one of them. Uh, but the other thing is, is that women have some behavioral patterns on top of that that make them prone. And the main one is, uh, this, uh, skipping meals, drinking Mm, on an empty mm -hmm. stomach, what the college kids call (laughs) pre-gaming and, uh, it's one of the ways that I mean I used to do this thing because I was always gaining weight because of my drinking and also because I like my hangovers were like I need to eat you know an entire box of Kraft macaroni and cheese right, like right. for yeah. breakfast lunch and dinner yeah. um, so I was always gaining weight and then I was trying to control my calorie consumption and so I would skip meals and just drink on an empty stomach and that I was I would always black out well I shouldn't say I would always black out because uh, I didn't blackout every time I drank but I did learn that there was a high correlation between drinking on an empty stomach and my blackouts um, but that's what a blackout is but you know I have to say I struggled so long with these things and you know people that I dated you know knew that I was struggling and, and friends in my life knew I was struggling and none of us knew what a blackout was right. I never once looked up well, what are the risk factors for blackouts? Like exactly. I just I'm and part of that is okay. Um, a lot of my early story is pre-internet, so mm. Wikipedia doesn't exist <laughs> yet. Okay. okay. Yeah. Give, give me that uh, give me that excuse. You know, the other thing is there wasn't a lot of research done about blackouts <laughs> until the 21st century, and that's because of neuroscience has evolved in the last 20, mm-hmm. you know, in the last century. Um, it was just an unexplored area of study. So they didn't even know until th- 2002, a Duke study was done on binge drinking, and that's when they 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 asked these college kids, you know, do you have blackouts? And more than 50% of them said wow. yes. And they were like, whoa, this is not matching up with the medical literature, which said that blackouts were like the the red flag for alcoholism. The, one of the early guys that studied it thought that it was almost like a a, a, life stage before you became an alcoholic. So you would have, it oh, was, you would start having blackouts right before this, this critical trigger tipping point. Right. Oh. So that's why in all the medical literature that, you know, it would always say, do you have blackouts? And if you did, you would get flagged as an alcoholic
2: hmm.
3: and the, the link is not that direct. However, if you are having regular blackouts you are telling a medical professional that you regularly drink to the point <laughs> right. of a very high level.
2: <laughs> right. And yeah.
3: that you despite the fact that you can't remember mm. what happened, you're continuing to put yourself in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so it is, you know, it's it's not that there's no link to problem mm-hmm. drinking. I mean it's it's a high risk, it's a it's a high risk form of drinking.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Did you drink out?
3: Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear. You know? I don't know if yeah, Chris. All the Matt- time.
4: Yeah. All the time. Did I black out? No, I didn't yeah. black out. Oh, I blacked out all the time. But but the risk factors you were talking about and some things that precipitate a blackout. I mean, I would I would not eat on purpose, you know, skipping a meal. To get drunk. Get drunk faster. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> so and uh yeah, and many and I was also a fall down the stairs guy. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. you know, I can recall coming into work the morning after a Christmas party and people saying, Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. And I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. And apparently I'd fallen down a flight of stairs in front of the whole company and um, you know, they were gonna call an ambulance the whole deal. No recollection. So it was yeah. it was a yeah. it, you just deal with it. I worked I worked around it.
3: And I guess. and how and can I ask how tall are you?
4: I'm like five nine.
3: Okay. Um, this is totally anecdotal, <laughs> but my experience has been that, uh, on people on the, like men on the five ten and below mm. and women on the five, five and below, uh, are more prone. Like I think there's something about being shorter and drinking as much oh, as everyone else. That's interesting. And I, that is completely anecdotal. Huh. Um, you are not a short man, but you are near average height man, right?
4: Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm in that five nine five ten, but I've always been kind of skinny and, uh, yeah. And, and like. Now you're just bragging. Well, <laughs> but you're tall, Chris. <laughs> right. so.
3: But, but I guess what I'm saying is that you would think blackouts would be these big, burly alcoholic men right. that are like six foot two yeah. and drinking like uh, sailors. And yeah. those are the men that tell me I've never blacked out before. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard from a lot of bigger men, um, that they never have blackouts. And I, you know, again, there's, there's genetic components sure. There's risk factor components, but I, I, I'm five foot two and I am now getting to see people who are blackout drinkers because they come to my readings and they come up to me. Interesting. And, um, you know, it's a lot of smaller women and smaller men. Right. And it's so, it's just been real fascinating to me. Um, so you
0: really are, I mean, you are, it's anecdotal, but you're getting an interesting sort of sampling.
3: Exactly. Um, yeah. And then I I just want to say one other thing, which is, um, I think a lot of people that our blackout drinkers either suffer from one of two delusions that everyone blacks out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is what I thought for a while. Everybody has a blackout, which is not true. Uh, or that nobody blacks out, which is also not true. You know, I can tell you, you know, while both of those are false, there are a lot of people having this experience and they are coming to me in my inbox and saying, oh, my God, I've been struggling with this for years. And mm-hmm. I never knew I never knew that other people had this problem. Uh, this has been a secret shame of mine, especially in the UK, where the book has also come out. Mm-hmm. And there is just not a recovery awareness there.
1: They drink. They drink a lot over there. They yeah, you, drink
3: a lot.
1: You know, probably. Jeffrey. Yeah, they do my i i behaved like a blackout drinker but i remember everything yeah, I, worse. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's,
3: I, I, I have a conversation i've had an ongoing conversation with a friend of mine about like which is worse not knowing what you did or knowing or, you or, did, yeah, knowing exactly what you did i was gonna say it's a
0: horrible thing to say but i think i would have welcomed the blackout when i was right. drinking because
3: no, i completely did too <laughs> yeah i mean i, I think that's the, you get to this point where you're like fuck you're like fuck it i don't care i'm so glad i can't remember what i did yeah it was yeah, I, mean, I used to joke that it was it was like God's little way of telling me, I didn't need to know. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was just God being nice to you. Yeah, you don't really want to know.
3: Nah, nah, we're just gonna pull this curtain. <laughs> <Yep. closed. laughs>
1: I remember I, I used to drink and not be able to speak. I remember my, mm-hmm. my speaking function would go, yep. and somehow I was still moving and going around and interacting, but I couldn't talk. And yeah. I was like, oh, I, was, I don't know what that Yeah, is. when you
4: can't articulate, I you know, I don't know, I don't, I, I just know that that abject horror of there are there are clues and you were talking about trying to piece together your blackouts that there are clues and there are sort of bellwether i don't know there are signs that something might have gone down and trying to put it back together and csi your own existence is miserable and secondhand recollections and you know most of the time it's easier to just shut the door and say okay that chapter's gone. We're, we're not going to ask any questions. We don't want to yeah, know. Just, it was just kind move of relieving. On.
3: Like in the beginning, I would ask my friends, you know, and be like, okay, I'm so worried. What did I do? Mm. And then you can only do that once or twice before yeah. they're like, they're not going to keep doing that for you. The
1: <laughs> jig is up. Right. But
3: yeah. So then, then it becomes like you start doing the like, hey, what was that bar we went to? Like. <laughs> What's that? You know, so you start doing the like sideways clue uh. finding. And then it's like, like you said, like you just give up and you're like, I don't care anymore.
4: Yeah. It's better uh, nobody knows.
3: It's, it's just, let's just move on. <laughs> but you don't, you still carry that secret shame inside of you. I did at least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was ultimately was what primed me for recovery was I just reached a, a, um, a level of untenable like shame of basically disgust with myself and uh you know then i i walked into a bookstore and saw drinking a love story and thought cool somebody that loves drinking as much as i do and
3: uh, uh that's awesome that's yeah. so cool
0: yeah I, I mean i was that's how in much in denial i was i don't even i, didn't, I clearly didn't read any blurbs and then i started reading it and i'm like <laughs> this wait a
2: minute yeah <laughs> and,
0: and by the time i was done you know i'm like this lady so, knows what's going on.
3: I'm always fascinated by what makes people quit. because, And I get asked this all the time. People want to hear some spectacular rock bottom moment mm. that like startled me awake. And the problem with my story is that I had those. I had several of those. Mm. And then I kept drinking yeah. um, because I would have these stabs of awareness where I was like, okay, this is it. I've got to stop. And then I would just four days later, I'd be like, Oh, that wasn't really that bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I think that, uh, I think I just need to do this thing. I need to just eat before I drink, or I need to not drink brown liquor, or I need to, you know, uh, only drink on the weekends or whatever. Like I was, I was so full of schemes and plans. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious what it was that pushed you guys into like pushed that Push you into the other side because I was so desperate to hold on. And somebody said to me the other day, I thought it was really smart. She said, You have to be out of ideas. Yeah. You know? Exactly. It, yeah. That's, that's and right. And it has to stop working for you. Yeah. And those were the two things that really came together. It wasn't doing what I wanted it to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I was out of ideas.
4: Yeah. And God, we're inventive. And yeah. I, oh that God. was what it was for me, is I just I tried to hack it every day possible way in so every, yeah, just so to try great. to find a, any permutation mixture and <laughs> I mean, switching to and I right. always thought, you know what, I'm just dramatic. That's what the yes. problem yes. is. like it's you're making a big deal out of it, just grow up and drink, you know, yeah. and um <laughs> oh, just bad, bad, bad. but yeah, everything you mentioned tried all that. Mm-hmm. and they mentioned it in the big book of AA all the I ways know. that we tried. Beat the system and uh and yeah, I'll eat this or I'll only eat this or I'll eat in these intervals and I'll drink in these <laughs> intervals and fail, just roundly fail and that was when when I couldn't find an angle anymore and uh and I was exhausted and I was disgusted and and it didn't work that's when I knew okay yeah. when it when it when it seemed like. You know, from the outside looking in, sobriety looks like a pretty miserable place. You know?
2: <laughs> right. When you're right. when you're in the exactly when
4: you're in the throes yeah. of alcoholism, sobriety you're like, I don't want to be one of those joyless automatons. I'm no. not doing that. But then when you yeah. it, when that becomes a more attractive option, you're like, yeah, yeah well, I'd still be alive. Then yeah. then it was like, okay,
0: and right there and right there on that uh, that 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 cusp, that precipice. I mean, it, it's terrifying. I mean, I think I've said before on the podcast, like I've cried twice in the past. Like twenty years, and once was the week before I quit, and I was crying because I said it felt like I was killing my best friend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and um, absolutely. That, that's how I was describing it to my parents, and I'm just like, it, and it literally feels like that, and it's astounding. The other time was at the birth of my daughter, but um, yeah, yeah it, it's it's a, a devious, tenacious beast. <laughs> yeah.
3: So true. I felt like I was killing my best friend too. Yeah. You know? And that really, you know, I don't think that I knew what a what companionship alcohol had been to me Mm -hmm. because I drank in social settings a lot. But I don't think I had fully admitted to myself how much it was a comfort for me when I was alone. And it was buffering that loneliness. And it meant that I never had to be alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and that's one of the reasons why I bonded so tremendously to my cat well I bonded so tremendously to my cat for many reasons but I think your sober animal like mm-hmm. you know the whatever the whoever carries that spirit <laughs> or takes right. on that role sure. of being your constant companion in sobriety it's just it's so intense you get so bonded um, yeah I felt like I had lost my best friend for sure
4: And then everything feels so much more immediate and real. And the bonds that you form when, at least when I first got sober, the bonds that I form were like, oh my gosh, this is real. This is, this is really real. What, how Mm -hmm. am I going to, you know, I I can't justify this away. I don't know. I
1: have a question. I have a question on a, because the one thing about AA meetings, like there's a rhythm to them, And if, when someone says this, there's always someone that answers with this. And so, you know, when you, When you get a little success, there's always someone that's going to give you this success speech about not to, you know, not is that going to somehow kick you off? Because a lot, I personally think I would relapse more on a high than I would on a low. Right now, today, that's interesting. I I think my defenses are down when things are going well Mm -hmm. versus when things are going bad. When I go to more meetings and talk to my sponsor, so I just wondered. This success, and you know, God doesn't give you anything until you're ready for it. You obviously, this is all coming. Is your sponsor giving you the success talk yet?
3: <laughs> um, well, <sighs> I've given myself the success talk, that's good, <laughs> and I'm glad that you're asking me about this because I think about it a lot. Yeah. And what I think about, you know, I found this old interview with Bill Wilson, who I think is a really interesting character, and he was really an overthinker too. Oh yeah. But he was talking about anonymity and the point of anonymity, and one of the things he talked about was you know, he was trying to to negotiate his own raging ego, and that he knew that if he, I think, if if he put his name out there, it was just going to be all about him, him, him. Yeah. And one of the reasons, and there's lots of reasons for anonymity. I don't mean to suggest that's the only reason why, but that he was really struggling with that. And, you know, I struggle with that too. And that's why I have to be really careful not to believe too much of my own bullshit. And I have to make myself go to the meetings and I have to remind myself that I have been given a gift. um, But that's not what it's about. And, you know, the way that my mind works is the more successful I get, the more I fear that it's going to, I'm going to fall like, and that's mm-hmm. actually where I am at in my head, which I can't really share with other people because I think it's really dis, uh, it's not good to be like, I've gotten all this success. Let me tell yeah. you about how anxious I am. You know, it's yeah, not, yeah. Like I, I want to be like, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so grateful and I am so grateful. Mm-hmm. But where my mind goes is, oh, Heppala, this is what it feels like on the way up and yeah. you're going to fall right back down. Yeah. When's it going to happen to you? And I'm just trying to enjoy what I've been given yeah. and I'm trying to accept if it never happens again, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to, um, make it so that it's like I, what I said to my sponsor was, this was like the two weeks leading up to the book. And I was like, I'm just, it's going really well. And I'm so scared of what's going to take it away.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and
3: she was like, you need a success that people can't take away. So, like, wow. what's that going to be? Wow. Because that means it can't be about all the other stuff because that can be taken away. So, what's it going to be for you? And so, that's why for me it's just about connections with other people and the, the relationships in my life and conversations like this. You know, like, that to me, that forms the bones of it so that it can't be taken away.
4: That is that is a incredibly powerful sentiment. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. You it can't be taken away, and you can't take it away. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Is uh, are you going on tour? Are you going to go around and go to bookstores and stuff like that? Is that what happens? Uh, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> like, yeah. Like it does,
3: they happening. don't do it as much. You know, they actually, yeah. there's this, this idea that they that they, you, know, you have the big book tour, and everybody wants to know about yeah. your book tour. They don't really do it that much because with the internet you can reach so many people yeah, and right. so you don't have to physically go places and it's really expensive and what was happening was you know people would show up in these towns and four people go and it's like thousands of dollars to get the author there it just yeah. wasn't the 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 it wasn't uh, financially uh, strategic for them, so I did three dates. I did New York, I did Dallas and Austin. but then, when the paperback comes out i 've told them I really want to do a more extensive book tour because that is when you know i won 't have as much publicity around the book, but there might be more awareness. people mm. might like to meet me, tell me their stories, and sure. you know it, it's it 's something that I would like to do so uh, whenever the paperback comes out and it 'll be six months or a year or whatever mm. i don 't know. Um, I'll do a more extensive book tour
0: well cool. and I hate to say recovery is having a moment but you know I hope it, it sticks but I mean it's really um you know becoming part of the zeitgeist it seems and uh, are, are you going to um, unite to face addiction in Washington October 4th
3: no I don't even know about it you know oh. it sounds like something that I should know about oh and, well it, uh, it,
0: it's it's su-
4: Uh, i'm finding that it it needs a bit i agreed to go before i knew what it was so
0: uh (laughs) (laughs) it's um it's being organized by at the top really is um greg williams who who um produced and directed the uh the anonymous people
2: sure yeah i know uh,
0: that better and so it's and it's got all these you know big recovery and prevention organizations um Gradually, and, and and I think it's it's ramping up, getting on board to... Basically, it's it, it's I'll um, I'll call it the the recovery version of, or the addiction version of the Million Man March, and mm-hmm. uh, is, is what they're trying to cool. organize. We're going to storm mm-hmm. the capitals. What exactly.
4: Uh-huh. exactly. Many words. And uh, yeah,
3: that's cool. No, so. I didn't. I didn't know about that. I I have also thought. You know, maybe recovery is having a moment. I, I what I hope. It does is that it destigmatizes recovery. And Absolutely. I don't mean, I, what do I mean? Uh, well, I just don't, I, it bothers me mm-hmm. that people lose social value when they stop drinking sure. and that women like me look at people who quit drinking, the old me, and say, you're not cool anymore. Yeah. And that's what I want to change. And I want people to stop associating excessive drinking with being cool and sobriety with being lame. Because I think that's a simplistic way to be in the world. It's just not true. Those broad categories are not true. And I would love to see more of an awareness uh, just around – well, see, and so once I start saying this, I feel really like the dorky person that's like, "You guys, sobriety can be fun."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, I play tennis. Gonna, I do yoga. yoga. Yeah, oh, everyone's yeah. like, "Narc." <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
3: we're gonna stay up playing board <laughs> games. But um, it, it, I feel like a church camp counselor, and mm. so that's. But but the thing is, is like, it's what's coolness. like what's coolness you know like because what what was cool to me was people living a big life and being authentic Mm -hmm. and being outside of the norm and being themselves and daring to say what they believed and those people i see those people in sobriety
2: Mm -hmm.
3: yeah
4: yeah absolutely absolutely and some of the most i don't know anytime i i feel like i'm defending sobriety or um you know you know to your point you feel like that you feel like that counselor and uh I don't know,
0: and that's that's what I mean. I'd like to get to the point where, and I I really try not to, to define myself in the negative, as in, you know, sobriety isn't not drinking. It's 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 what I am. You know, it's a state of being that just happens to be not drinking or not doing drugs. Um, You know, I've I've done that, I've been that way, but it's not a negative of something else. You know, which I think is what you're talking about. Is like it's perceived that way because you know, drinking and it certainly is a, a you know, enmeshed, intertwined in a significant part of our culture. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're fighting the good fight. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> so, and it's one of those things that I do believe that the AA or sobriety or whatever it is, <clears throat> it is attraction rather than promotion. I think once you right. get out there and you're evangelizing, that's no, no, I'm not going to tell anybody how they should Mm-mm. drink. Right.
4: Yeah, because I never listened to anybody telling me how I, I should or shouldn't never, drink.
3: The... I never would have listened to anybody else.
4: No, no, no. I, and I and I and I didn't, and I don't think a lot of us did. You know, I mean, evangelizing—that's just a, it's counterintuitive to the alcoholic to mm-hmm. do something because you're told to do it, or because someone else's opinion is that you you should be this way. You know, we yeah. we, we always know best, right? And. Uh, until well, I wa- I th- until I wanted this, it was never going to happen. It's,
3: it was never going to happen. And the other thing is, who am I to know another person's insides? You know, yeah. who am I to know whether or not they can or should drink? I just don't know. Yeah, I have to admit that I'm having a hard enough time knowing my own insides. Okay. Yeah, there, and, there's that, uh, great,
1: uh, that great quote in the book you had about uh, being be kind to drunk people. Yeah. <laughs> For every one of them is fighting an enormous battle. I thought that was great. <laughs> and it's, it's so true. And, yeah, it's funny. I think I. I I've gone through periods where I'm super intolerant of, mm-hmm. yeah. so I think I went through, you know, like I just, but now I'm a much more, much more empathetic to. <laughs>
0: well, and, and that's what, I mean, Jeff has, and Matt have helped me immensely with that. I mean, I, I think I told you in the pre-call sir that, you know, I started this because I, I didn't know how to help uh, friends and family. And I, I, yeah. I actually lacked the empathy and the understanding that you would think I'd have after, you know, 16 years of sobriety at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, was in the, I was locked into the mode of, of, of why don't they just quit, you know? Right, <clears throat> um, right. So it's easy to forget that. And, uh, that's what I'm, you know, that's what, what I'm learning through all of this is, is uh, how, to, how to do it still, you know?
3: Yeah. Right. And it's hard when you, you know, when people reach out and they want to quit but they can't quit. Exactly. And there's such a long lag time. Between wanting to quit and being able to try, or wanting to quit and making it stick, you know, and just that, that is so hard. One of the things that this book has brought home for me is how slow change is. Mm -hmm. And I hate that because I want change to be fast. And I want change to be instant. And we live in a culture where we are told that it is both. And that it is possible. Just buy X. Just take this. Mm-hmm. Just take this pill. Just, just yeah. buy this product. And it, they're all lies. But we, we can't help but believe them or believe their, their romantic fantasy. And when you get on the ground and you see how slow change is, mm-hmm. it's almost so, depressed, so depressing. <laughs> but then yeah. there is a beautiful message, which is that change is possible. You know, change is slow right. and aching and uncomfortable. And doesn't happen all the time, but it's also possible.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I I think that might be a note on which we we let you go. It's it's a beautiful (laughs) note. I I loved
3: talking to you guys. This was so much fun because I love talking to a bunch of um, people who've been here, been there, yeah, yeah, and uh, and I also I've been talking to a lot of women on this topic. And so what I love is to hear from guys that were there too and they get it because those guys are in my inbox too and they're saying, sure. I drank like that. I felt that way. And um, you know, this is not a story that's just for women. It's a story that's, that's for men and for not even just drinkers. It's for all of us that kind of oh, yeah. reached out for something that was outside of us to fix us. A, it was a
1: terrific, terrific book. My, uh, my wife read it as well. She, has, she had a question. Can I ask my wife? Mm, my wife of course. Question? So, and this, I don't want to like give away the ending or, you know, spoiler alert. So maybe we'll cut this up. but the plan, did you have a plan when you went to find Johnson? Did you actually have something in your head, what you were going to say to this guy?
3: You know, that's, it's funny. This is actually the second time I've been asked this question. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, my, my going back to Paris was mm-hmm. an extravagant fact finding,
2: mm.
3: fact checking mission on my part. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I found him, and I actually thought I'm, I could. Yeah. The other guy, I didn't think I could, but I was going to try to find if if I could find the database and find his name. That seemed like a that seemed like a needle in a haystack. Yeah. But Johnson, I actually thought I might be able to find. And if I found him, I think I was just going to say, "Do you remember me? Hmm. Yeah. What do you What do you remember?" And see what his version of the story was. Yeah. Because see, I don't actually, and see, I can promise you, he would remember that story differently, sure. and probably with an uncomfortable romantic tinge that is the yeah. the the crux of the the tension and dread of that scene. Yeah, yeah. Which is, he sees that story. I think, and I'm not sure because I it just I think he thinks he's rescuing me. Right. I yeah. think
1: he's yes. the hero of the piece.
3: He thinks he's the hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. I, I'm experiencing him as, I don't want any of this, and I want you to go away, and I, I don't, I, I, I can't say it, but I'm being, you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm just like, uh, uh, what's the word? I mean, somebody somebody described his behavior as sordid opportunism. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> about
0: right. Yeah. That sounds That's about right. right.
3: You know, and huh. that, for me, was the ultimate in building a bridge back into your past and, and not being afraid of it. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't afraid of him yeah. in the sense that he never felt like to me, I was in physical danger. Right. Um, which is interesting. I just felt that, uh, I had so much shame and, and confusion mm. and, uh, just a low level yuckiness about that. There was something, uh, interesting to me about the attempt to go back and look it in the face yeah. and to see what I found and yeah. to be okay with whatever yeah. he told me that it wasn't going to challenge my understanding of what happened. Right. It might, yeah. it might enrich it, exactly, but it wasn't like I was going to say, Oh, you're right. It was just, gr- I mean, I know exactly what I felt. Right. Yeah, That is my story. He might have a different story. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was scared. I didn't know if I – it was interesting to me that I cried when I couldn't find him because I still don't know why I cried. Because yeah. um, I think I was scared shitless. <laughs>
1: so,
2: yeah. Yeah, there's oh, a lot much. of
0: probably – regardless, I mean, tension
1: that, that had built, yeah? Yeah, um, yeah. Sounds like you found closure, though,
2: yeah. either way.
3: You know, I, I don't – I you know, it, when I was putting out this book, part of me thought, oh, gosh, what if somebody really does dig him up, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And How many then, Johnsons
1: like, are in Paris at a hotel? That's uh, not.
3: Right? That's not even right? a French
1: name. Like, well, really?
0: Now that it's on the, the the interwebs, that's that's what they specialize in. I hear. I know. Is, uh,
3: so I have to face the possibility. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. That this person is going to yeah. walk into my life. Yeah. And that is one of the things that might be hiding behind a door in the future for yeah. me. Cool. And uh, you know what? It's just take a deep breath, mm. walk on, keep going. Like, all right then
2: yeah all right all right well a, you know I don't, a, was... I don't
0: think that was a spoiler if anything i think that was a a, a terrific tease and if anybody hasn't picked it up and <laughs> read it to the end that will do it i, I think yeah um because it, it's uh yeah something out there um that uh i'd want to get to the bottom of.
2: yeah
0: all right um well watch. Uh, hey Sarah. i mean we greatly uh appreciate you you um taking the time to, to talk to us tonight and you're certainly welcome back anytime um,
3: uh well thank and what, you guys thank you guys for doing what you do yeah
0: and what a brilliant brilliant
4: book i mean you really you really are a, a writer's writer what a what a well-told story and like i said you've you just you you articulated some things that i think so many alcoholics and addicts who are either in the throes of addiction or looking back on it from the other side are, are so difficult you just you you encapsulated it perfectly, and I'm grateful for that. Um,
3: uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Cool.
2: Thanks, Sarah.
0: Right. Well, uh, yeah, and let us know, uh, if not sooner, when, when you the, the paperback comes out and you go on tour, and, and maybe we'll, uh, you can come back then, if not sooner. For sure. All right. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. Have thank you so night. much, Sarah.
3: Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.
2: It's a bit upsetting at the end, isn't it?